Greg and I felt like it wasn't the right people, that other group. And we tore the term sheet. Greg was bringing back all these um, Belgian waffles and, and treats and what have you from Belgium to in his dorm and you know to all his friends in college and then um, realized, wow, like you can't really get this stuff in America. I had never done CPG. I had no idea what CPG standed for, right? And it was just like, Walmart gave us a shot in 65 stores. It was a logistical nightmare across four DCs, but we wanted to see, does this work? How did you kind of think about these two things? And I get my... The most beautiful rejection email. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, brought to you by Propeller Industries, the leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies. On this show, we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, please subscribe on YouTube or whichever platform you're viewing this content. And if you want the full experience, subscribe to my newsletter at thegoodsumervc.com. I send fundraising updates of all the latest consumer deals that are happening, and you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Anouk Gottlieb, the CEO of Belgium Boys. Belgium Boys is bringing European treats like Belgian waffles, brioche French toast, crepes, and other delicious delights to the American home. They are now in over 8,400 stores, including Walmart, Target, Whole Foods. We discuss Anouk's journey from fashion to joining her husband in starting this food CPG company, how they first got into retail, what it was like years of bootstrapping to raising from Daniel Lebeski's venture firm Camino Partners, and also why they pivoted from frozen food to refrigerator food and much, much, much more. This is a lot of fun. Thank you, Anouk, for coming on the show. Without further ado, here's Anouk. Anouk, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much, Mike, for having me. I'm so excited for our conversation today. I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, really am. And um, congrats again on, on, on kind of all your success and everything with Belgium Boys. Um, I wanted to start from the very beginning. Because I know that your husband's obviously an integral part of the story, and 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 really, it was kind of like his um uh his idea in terms of getting the getting the actual business off the ground. How did you meet Greg? Ooh, um, how did I meet Greg? You know, you know how the the, the have you ever heard that a change of plane ride can change your life? For me, it actually did. So um, <laughs> I actually met Greg on a flight from Belgium to New York. So Greg had graduated college. Uh, he went to college in Boston. He's originally from Belgium too, went to Belgium to visit his family. And I was super young and excited to go for my fashion internship to New York City because I was studying fashion. And I mean, New York's like one of the fashion capitals of the world. I was excited to, you know, that that movie, The Devil Wears Prada. Like, that was me. <laughs> that was me. And um, on the flight, Greg was there. And so we met uh, on that plane. It was back when Continental Airlines still existed. So we're vintage. <laughs> I remember Continental very, very well. It was a very, good airline, well. right? Um, it was. It was a good airline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I, yeah, uh, though for sure, for sure, for sure, definitely. They, I think I've, I think I've flown there from uh, uh, to Europe a, 
a couple times too. So um, that's awesome. Um, so I know that Greg, like maybe like part of like the idea behind Belgian boys was Greg was bringing back all these um, Belgian waffles and, and treats and what have you from Belgium to in his dorm and, you know, to all his friends in college. And then, um, realized, wow, like you can't really get this stuff in America and everyone seems to love it. And so created a business, what eventually became Belgian boys. And let me know if I'm, I, I'm incorrect there. Um, you ended up joining like the business a bit later, um, uh, and decided to leave fashion. Um, why, why did you leave fashion for, um, to actually, to actually join your, your, your husband and, and on, on this venture with Belgian boys? Well, when you ask the question like that, it's like, why why did that no um but exactly that's the story and um so my background in fashion greg was starting to ideate this idea and i was telling him okay greg like let's like i can use my skills here i can help you photoshop illustrator um let me do that you know if, if you think even of clothes you pick something up from a shelf on the the rack because it looks good right and how can we apply that same thing to food i was like if, if it's not gonna look good people are not gonna pick it up so let's create something that looks good so that people will actually want to try it and to eat it and that was what, what i was doing that at night uh, helping greg do the branding the design the story behind the brand um and really helping with that and then fashion listen I loved what I did. I really enjoyed everything being creative. I did everything from like sketching to ideating, conceptualizing, sewing. But fashion is a very, very toxic industry. And that's what I felt. And I remember this like yesterday. I was, uh, we, we went away and we got engaged. And I was like the happiest girl in the world. I wasn't expecting it. We were young. And I was like, I'm engaged, I'm engaged. And I get back to the office. And five days later, I find myself back into my like, uh, she said this, he said that, da, 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 and not feeling good about myself. And I'm like, how? I had this like moment of like, how is this possible? I'm happy in my life. Why is this negativity coming on me? And I gave my resignation and said, I'm done. I'm done with that. Um, the goal was to keep looking for another company, but Greg was like, why don't you do this with me? And I'm like, I don't know. We just got engaged. Like that seems dangerous. Uh, but we said, let's give it a try. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we'll stop. Cause obviously a relationship is very important and uh, we want to give that a try. Well, Hey, a business and two kids later, we just celebrated our anniversary. And like, uh, yeah, we've been married for eight, nine years now. That's fantastic. Um, what, what did you feel like? I understand, you know, prior to you joining you full time, you were helping out on the marketing, the branding side, and maybe bringing things that you've learned from the fashion world to CPG. What do you think? I mean, he talked specifically about what on the, on the, on the kind of skill set that you had in the fashion side you were managed to bring bring on the CPG side that you thought were like incredibly helpful and valuable to like build, um, uh, build maybe the brand identity from the beginning. Yes, I mean, I think it's also I, I think it's first the creative approach. I have a creative mindset, so I understood the this not only like hey, this is the concept, this is what we're gonna do. Think about like when a business person like 
briefs a creative. This is the concept, bring it to life. I think the strength was that I actually knew the steps of what needs to happen as well, in addition to that creative process, from the conceptualizing to actually doing the Photoshop, the illustration, and building that brand. Um, and I think also the personal connection to the project and to the product with Greg. I'm also from Belgium. I understood. I was bringing those streets with me. And so really that personal connection that like, yeah, I get why this is missing in the US and really discovering it with him together. Like, okay. Um, but on a, you know, fashion, it's like on a piece of paper, it, that's what it starts with. Like you have a piece of paper and then you start drawing and designing and then you see a garment. Like there are so many steps in between not being afraid to start drawing. And that's the same concept that we apply to this brand. Like, let's not be afraid to put every idea on the paper that we have, every concept, go crazy. And then we dial it down. And that was the creative process that we went through initially. So looking at kind of every idea and then scaling it down instead of saying, okay, like this is a good one. Let's kind of, um, let's, you know, have this maybe be the brand and then kind of move along to like the next, the next thing in terms of like product development or, or what have you. Correct. Correct. I mean, also the, the color of the brand is pink. I mean, I wear pink all the time, Like you gotta, you gotta be bold to put pink as your brand color for a brand named Belgian boys that sells waffles and pancakes. And that's, that's a decision that wasn't scary. Was was part of that decision too? Was it when you when you thought about, for example, like color palette? Were you were you also thinking about okay, let's like let's look at like 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 the uh, competitive set and see what other brands were doing and how can we actually stand out and be different? I mean, I want to say that answer right now, Mike. But like back then, I had never done CPG. I had no idea what CPG standard for, right? And it was just like this is the first time for us and let's figure it out. So yes, we were looking at a lot of stores, but it wasn't like, well, I think pink is going to stand out great and it's better than yellow because yellow is ego. Like all these data points, we didn't have back then and we didn't have the knowledge. So it was a lot of gut-based decision. Love, that's awesome. Um, So, and initially, when you talk about like sales channels, what was your first sales channel for your products? Well, initially it was our car and we were just going to go, we're just going in Manhattan, like all the stores and just, Hey, do you want our product? Like, and, and lots of bodegas and like stores in the city. Cause we were living in the city uh, in New York and that was really what we were doing. Um, and then our first hire was Robin. Robin, uh, she's still with the company. She's amazing. She taught us so much. Um, both to Greg and I, and her strength was specialty. And that's where we started with the specialty stores, with her um, guidance and her leadership. We went to um, the Jewel Oscars, the Central Market, the Harmons, the Whole Foods of the world. And um, that was initially how we got off the ground. What did you think that, when we started maybe getting into retail, what do you think, um, what do you think that they, uh, like pay attention to the most in terms of how you're able to actually get into um, that particular retailer? Well, the product, just first of all, it tastes delicious and it, it looks phenomenal, right? I think you can you can have the best trend and the best supplement and the best idea. At the end of the day, the product got to taste good. It was a product that was not on the market, that they hadn't tasted before, that 
was just not there and that European foods brought to the mainstream is a concept that appeals, but it like can't just say, oh, this is cool. Let's bring European European to the US. Like number one is taste. And we 100%, I mean, I'm super subjective here, but uh, our product tastes really, really good. That's why our consumer keeps, but that's what we hear. That's why our consumer keeps buying it and really become that household staple for the consumer. I think originally it was probably the French accents that were like super convincing for the buyers. Um, but, you know, there was also some backlash because when we started, um, in those years, 2016-ish, 15, 16, a lot of the movement was like really leaning into better for you, better for you, better for you. And we were more like a bit indulgent, right? And that was actually something that was harder for us to get through because it was not with the trends. I think today, really, people understand like, what is it that we do? We're that trade-up from an Eggo waffle, from a Pop-Tart that the American consumer has eaten, but doesn't want to give their kids now that they have a family. And that has, I would say, been more of our setting story and what the buyer resonate to today than back then what we've, when we were there originally starting out. That's interesting. So it was so it was kind of tougher to break through just because a lot of, especially on my natural channel, I know I, mean, I, I I heard yeah. Whole Foods in there in, in, in terms of early uh, retailers, but um, in terms of actually getting into some of these stores, that was actually uh, pretty tricky just because they wanted more of like the better for you type products. And yet your product was just premium, amazing, delicious, um, you know, waffles um, that were um, that were great. Um, it wasn't, you know, maybe a better for you product than that, you know, kind of mine in terms of also the marketing when it comes to you know, that, but, but it was purely delicious, you know, and it was indulgent, as you say. So that was, that was quite, quite challenging from that. And how, how also did you think about where the product fit? Cause th from the beginning, did you start off as a, um, as a, fro as it, in the frozen section? We get there to that first meeting, we show waffles, pancakes, crepes, and buyers are like, oh, you're frozen breakfast. And Greg and I look at each other, which is like, smile like yeah we want to know what this is like i had never heard of frozen breakfast in my life mike like what is frozen breakfast like why would you freeze breakfast like it doesn't make any sense think about it as your own customer habits right what do you open when you make your like you wake up in the morning you go you make your coffee what do you open the fridge or the freezer the fridge most americans open the fridge so why do you stock up on an item that you eat every single day. And if you think about your customer habits, that experience in the stores, where do you buy other breakfast foods that are complementary? You buy eggs, you buy milk, you buy yogurt, you buy dairy. It's all refrigerated. So why do we go all across the store to buy frozen breakfast? Didn't make any sense, but we were like, oh, no, no, we, we want to be refrigerated. But it was like, no, you, you frozen breakfast. And we leaned in. We went to frozen breakfast. We're actually performing really good in frozen breakfast for many years, for the years after we started. And in our gut, we were like, this is not how the consumer is supposed to shop for our product. We need to be merchandised refrigerated. That's also how product is merchandised in Europe. There is 
way more options in refrigerated than in frozen. There is no options for frozen breakfast in, in Europe. And we didn't want to like stop. And we were like that bugging annoyance that kept asking for refrigerated placements until finally we got our shot in 2019. We did a rotation at Costco, went back to the redirect. Look, 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 see. Um, like, well, you're doing great in frozen breakfast. You're staying here. You're bringing growth to my set. Um, and then Walmart gave us a shot. Walmart gave us a shot in 65 stores. It was a logistical nightmare across four DCs, but we wanted to see, does this work? And we outperformed at Walmart refrigerated than we were doing at other retailers in frozen, more premium retailers. We're like, okay, we're onto something, right? And then we continue to lean into that data to grow uh, our Walmart business to now 900 stores in four years and leaned in heavily with Target. Same, we started in 200 stores, grew that, uh, launched at Meyer, launched at Publix, Kroger, and um, it's been really exciting the last two to three years. That's amazing. And but but from initially, you thought it was a refrigerated product that it should have been a refrigerated product, but just that the American consumer was used to buying waffles, and also the retailers were telling you, "Hey, like you're you're in the frozen section," so you had to start off being frozen just to get those stores and get kind of in the door, and then eventually you had you you decided to um, um, not pivot. You still have like a frozen section, but 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 to introduce products that actually aligned with with what you thought actually made more sense, which was in the refrigerated section. Exactly. And I mean, it comes a bit full circle that uh, this year, the CMA, which is a category management association, like published a case study of refrigerated breakfast and with Belgium Boys as one of the brands to highlight there. I really am excited just about the thought of how does this retail landscape look like in five years? How will the consumer shop for breakfast food? And that aisle of refrigerated breakfast destination within the stores. That's what we're doing now with our retail partners. And the retailers don't want to miss out. So it's been super, you know, after being told no, 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 for so many times to now be able to work with the CMA, to work with leadership in the stores, to build the future of how that consumer is going to shop, like that's a really exciting place to be at. And we're just getting started. So, but from a perishable expiry date perspective, yeah. is refrigerated a lot harder when it um, versus frozen? Because I, I presume that yeah. the the expiry dates, it's, it's much shorter span. So yeah. your velocities yeah. have to be like a lot yeah. higher. Is that is Is that the case? Oh, it's easy, Mike. Like, it's so easy. You know, you do this in your sleep, refrigerated. Like, everybody should do that. It's super, super challenging operationally and from a, you know, from a team perspective. Plus, you're building a category that doesn't exist. So you're asking buyers to, like, understand things for the product. Go to the refrigerator for your waffles instead of going to the Exactly. And we need to date our product. So there's a lot of complexity, which is why we work with a retailer first on a smaller scale, and then we scale that to more stores because we want to really understand how operationally the supply chain works to make sure like we're on a weekly ordering cadence. Our team's OTIF is like laser focused because... We need to make sure that from an operation and supply chain and back end perspective, 
we're there to maximize. The velocities are there, it's supporting, but there's a lot of work that goes into the back end. Um, and we have an amazing team to do that. Got it. And so and and so it is a lot more challenging being on the refrigerated side than being the frozen yes. side overall yes, from, sure. from a supply chain sure. perspective. Um, and for I know sure. that you were like bootstrapped, I, I believe, for like this whole time. Like how how did you na- navigate in terms of actually financing um, not this pivot, but, you know, this kind of exp- a, a product expansion to actually go from frozen to uh, refrigerated? Because it sounds like, you know, you have to almost like reinvent your product in, in, in some way. Yes. I mean... And really that Walmart, 65 stores, that was our first go at it, right? And it gave us enough data to say, we have something special. And we know that this is what this company is supposed to do for the future. And I think that after we had the Walmart initial data grew from Walmart 65 to 300 stores, then launch at Target in 200 stores, that's when we have enough data to say, okay, from a bootstrap business now, we know what it is that we're going to do. We know where we need to invest, where we need to spend the resources. Now is the time for us to go out and raise capital um, after that, after being in business for a couple of years already. Um, we started the business in 2015 and we raised capital in 2021. So we bootstrap for a long time. This episode is brought to you by Propeller Industries. If you run a high growth business and you're focused on profitability, extending your runway, and improving your operational efficiency, you probably need to finance an accounting whiz that will grow with you. Well, instead of hiring someone full-time, what would be cost-effective is working with Propeller Industries. Propeller Industries is a leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies and has partnered with over 1,000 startups and high growth businesses across consumer products, consumer tech, and enterprise. Propeller also provides specialized support for fundraising and M&A with transaction advisory services. Propeller's TA team of former investment bankers and investors can step in on more of a project basis when pursuing full-scale financing and M&A. There's a link to Propeller Industries in the show notes if you want to learn more information. So part of the reason though, that you felt you needed to raise was because from the, from like the product innovation standpoint and moving as well from the um, from the form factor from frozen to uh, uh, to refrigerated, what what was um, uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, about the fundraise? What were you kind of looking for when when it came to a partner? Um, how much how much were you looking to raise? And um, and also like um, I mean twenty twenty one, I'd imagine that's um, that would the market the market was certainly um, it's always terribly challenging to raise market, but it's I'd imagine it was a little bit more um, there's a lot more kind of money flowing um, in 2021 than, than than there was today. But if you can walk me through like that whole kind of sequence of events, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we were bootstrapped for many years, and and we knew that we needed the money to really go out and scale our concept that we had product market fit for. So we knew it was the right time for us. And um, so Greg and I kind of, I remember we were sitting down and we said, okay, before we go out and had never raised capital, so I had no idea how to do that. Um, but we asked a lot of friends in the industry, etc., And we we're like, okay, before we go out, we need an advisory board because we need advice through this journey. And so we, Greg and I sat down and we wrote a list of who would be the people we would want on our advisory board? Of course, you're a CPG company. Daniel Lubetsky goes on that list, right? He's like, 
role model. I'm like following him on LinkedIn, on this, on that. And I reached out. I reached out to Daniel through the Frontline Impact Project. Or are you, it was the project that, remember in COVID, um, there were hospitals and there were brands that wanted to give. And so they created this match, matching project where brands could be paired with places that needed. And so we had been working with that Frontline Impact Project for a year or so. And so I reached out there. I'm like, hi, I'm da, 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 and I want to go and I want Daniel. I'm like, I got bumped up, 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 up. Until I talked to Daniel's chief of staff. And I'm like, oh my God. And I get, Mike, the most beautiful rejection email. It was, <laughs> seriously, it was like such a nice email saying that uh, wishing us luck and the best, but Daniel had lots of time commitments and this and that, and thank you for the, the work with the frontline, etc. So put that to the side, that story to the side for a sec. We continued on, we had our deck, and um, just by connecting with people, we got a lot of angels that were in, interested in joining our adventure. And we're like, oh, cool, lots of friends from friends, industry, ex-founders, and that felt really good. So we were going to do around half angels or we were going to actually raise $6 million. And we were, we had 2 million um, from angels and 4 million from another group. Um, five days before, and I think it's the first time I'm telling this story, but five days before that was supposed to go through, Greg and I felt like it wasn't the right people, that other group. And we tore the term sheet. Um, we had about $12,833 in the bank account. Scary. And went back to our angels and we're like, hey, we're doing this. Um, and some of them didn't follow through. And we did it. And that was a long road of over 300 pitches and lots of small checks, medium checks. And um, we went with our gut and it was absolutely the right decision. Um, one, and then how did we get back in touch with Daniel's team? Actually, I pitched and someone said, this is not for me, but I want to connect you with um, Ellie Lanning, who's on Daniel's team. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. No, oh my God. And I was just like, such a long shot, never gonna work. It's not gonna be. And I was just like, oh, like, ah. Um, and that first conversation was great. Ended up being a second, a third, a fourth. Then I met Daniel. That was like the highlight. And um, we closed our round after that. That's, wow, what a story. What a story. Kind of first being rejected and then you kind of come back, just had this gut that, hey, we need these people on our on, on our cap table. We need Daniel. We need Camino Partners. We need, we need Ellie. Um, I was I, I was fortunate to have Ellie on the podcast prior. She's, she's, she's amazing, awesome. She's right? awesome. She's amazing. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah, she's, she's simply terrific. Um, and, um, and, and, and also, like, what I also appreciate about the story, too, is it seemed like you had a very clear reason 
why to raise capital in that you already had this market, uh, uh, this, this, um, you already had validation from these 65, uh, Walmart, Walmart stores. You now needed that to know, okay, we now need to move over to refrigerated, which is a lot more, which was, I mean, frozen is complex, but it seems like refrigerated is even more complex just because you have these, um, type, um, um, expiry dates and you kind of need to be on like a week per week basis, I'd imagine on the, on the velocity side too. Um, and so you, you, you had clear reason why you actually wanted to, um, you've almost had like product market fit, but you need actually the money to actually scale you in these, um, across these retailers. And of course, I know you're now in like thousands upon thousands of stores, which it seems like that, I mean, that's obviously incredible. So it's, it, it seems to have worked so far. Yeah, I'm very, we're very grateful. We're now in uh, about 6,000 stores and continuing to to grow with that refrigerated breakfast and it's still nowhere yet right and um, really working with the retail partners to scale that and um, i'm very grateful to have amazing partners that truly believe in what we're building understand the complexities and that takes time to build something amazing right it takes time and you gotta do it right and you can't rush through it because if you do it's gonna break and um, really, I think having that partner next to us that's built kind has been just phenomenal. And I'm like, I can't take that for granted. It's really, we're very, very lucky and um, very grateful. You know, one thing also that I remember Greg and I said when, when I had that like 300 pitches, lots of angels, big, small checks, etc. One thing Greg and I said, it's like our rule gotta be people you can have dinner with two nights in a row and still want to go with for a third night and it's like like is that your rule really absolutely because raising capital you're getting married and you do not want to divorce you don't and then at the end of the day this is our life this is what we do i want to do it with people that i like to be around and I think people think that sometimes for like, oh, well, it's like the absolute most important thing in my my mind. It's like do stuff with people you love because together you will build something way, way greater than if it's with people you just can't stand. And that's why we just didn't go through with that first term sheet and decided to find our partners. Totally. And I think it's what's also kind of interesting when it came to, uh, from that standpoint is you were also open for, you know, guidance too, right? Like you wanted Daniel, you wanted his team, you know, part of part on your cap table. You wanted them as mentors, advisors, of course, you know, being part of the company, um, because you wanted, you know, people that have actually uh, been there. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be speaking for you, but it seemed like you actually wanted people that actually had been there that actually had, you know, uh, substantial uh, success within CPG. You weren't just looking for, um, you weren't just looking for money, but it's also, um, but, but also, you know, people that you obviously respect, admire, and that you actually wanted um, part of this journey. Yeah. I think what I've learned, a lot that I've learned is, you know, it takes, I don't want to minimize, but building a business from zero to 2 million, 3 million, et cetera, not been there, done that, but like you can figure that out, right? I think taking that to the next stage, like it's one thing to get on the shelf, to stay on the shelf and build a brand 
that will create enterprise value that actually gets into the consumer lives and impacts them so much that they want to keep buying it, it's such a different skill set. And that's where Greg and I knew we need to get the best experts next to us, people that have done that, that can guide us around, guide us through that. Because scaling a business is different than growing a business. And that's a big lesson. Also, what I find really compelling as well, just about the business story of Belgian boys, which a lot of companies aren't able to do this, is going from the natural channels in the grocery store to conventional, to the Walmarts, to the Targets, to um, you know those kind of areas. And from a from a and, and so, I was wondering, how did you think about how are you able to kind of accomplish that? And secondly, how did you also think about price? Because you know, typically the natural channels. Um, you know, um, and part of the reason maybe why a lot of companies have struggled or, or had a hard time going from conventional uh, could be due to price. You know, the natural channels as a shopper, it could be um, people that have more disposable income, um, higher earners or what have you. Where in conventional, it might, that might, I mean, I know that these, these worlds are kind of blending now, but that might not be the case. So how did you, um, and in terms of the, the brands you're kind of competing against, it can be from like a very different standpoint when it comes to price. So how did you kind of think about these two things? Yeah, I, I, it's great, great question. Um, and listen, when we, I'll, I'll go back in history. When we started, we thought our consumer has been in Amsterdam and in Brussels, and they want to be reminded of that experience of the streets and eating a fresh crepe in Paris. That's what we thought. That's who we thought our consumer was. And that's not who our consumer is. Our consumer is the mainstream consumer that is trading up from the everyday. We, have, we are incremental to their basket. And that was when we had like that aha switch. We saw what's in their basket. I remember looking at that Walmart basket data and I'm like, wait, what? That's our consumer? In our basket, there's eggs, there's um, refrigerated doughs like Pillsbury, all of those, um, Lucky Charms, uh, boneless chicken, strawberry, Nutella, and uh, pretzel crisps. And I'm like, what? That's a, like our consumer is some like a family that goes on Saturday or on Sunday to do the grocery shopping and that gets a like mom gets like that Starbucks in, 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 in the store, walks around the store and every kid can pick one thing. That's our consumer. It's the everyday mainstream and finding, I agree with you, finding for that emerging brand, the success in mass and grocery, it's a brand appeal. And at Belgium Boys, it really worked so much that that is the channel where we see our consumer being the strong consumer. And I think it's more of a surprise effect in the beginning when we found out, found out but we really leaned into that. That is where they live. That's how we market to, to our consumer. That's that mom. It's our mission as a brand is to spark moments of joy. That's our mission. And if you think about it, especially for mom, that moment when you wake up, you got to get yourself dressed. You got to get the kids dressed. Where is the shoe? Oh my God, we forgot the homework. Um, where, where, where is the boots? Et like what we have for breakfast, it's not something we want to argue about. 
I, it, it's got to be easy. It's got to be simple. It's got to be filling so that your kids and yourself walk out the door with like enough energy to go and get the day. And especially for kids, when they leave the door, you don't know if they're going to be bullied, if they're going to have an awful day or if they're going to have a best day. You can control that first hour of the day. And Belgian boys contribute to that first hour, having them live with a smile. And that's a powerful message. And I think that if you focus as a brand on who your consumer is and what you solve for them, that's when you're able to have that mainstream appeal uh, if your customer is a mainstream customer. I mean, I have two kids. I'm not whipping up pancakes in the morning every morning. Like, who has time for that, right? Um, that's like that mom in the movies. It's not everyday mom. It's not that parent every day. And you want something that's easy, convenient, delicious, nutritious. And that, that's really what Belgium Balls delivers on, which is why I think we have that mainstream appeal. Once you realize that you had mainstream appeal, that it was kind of like the everyday consumer in your mind and not, and not someone that, Hey, I've like visited Belgium or visited Europe and kind of want this experience and, and bring this back to the experience. And, um, it was really like the everyday consumer. Once you learn that insight, what changes did you have to do, um, for Belgian boys in terms of on, on, uh, strategically, was it, um, was there any, like, for example, like branding or positioning changes? Was there price changes? Was there even how you thought about even rolling out new products? Absolutely. Branding and positioning. I think you hear this and you're like, no, because you live it. But simple is better. Like simpler is better. And when you are in the brand and you are in this every day, I think we tend to overcomplicate things because it's got to be exciting for us over what we did before. And then you want to make it even more sophisticated, even more sophisticated. But you have like a split of a second to make an impact. I'll tell you a little anecdotal story, but our Belgian waffle used to be named the Liège Waffle. Mike, do you know what Liège is? I don't. Voilà. Exactly. That exactly proves my point. Liège is the city in Belgium where the Belgian waffle, the traditional one, is authentically made in. And that's why it's gotten the name of the city of where it's made. So we say we eat a Liège Waffle. What we did was horrible. We made our consumer feel stupid for five or six ninety nine. That's horrible. I gave you a feeling of being stupid because you don't know what you're buying. And it costs five bucks. Like that's terrible consumer experience. We changed it to the traditional Belgian waffle. Boom, skyrocket sales. It's so simple. And yet brands tend to overcomplicate. Why? That's that's a great, great example. I mean, you know, this like they tell your consumer what product that they're that that they're going to be purchasing. Don't try to kind of overcomplicate it with, with you know, kind of like this, um, not you know, inside type, um, uh, like, like in the know type kind of behavior. But um, and I totally understand originally why you just why you kind of went that route in that you wanted someone that oh wow like you know I I I went to Europe and what have you and kind of want that experience and then you know you kind of know that you're kind of in the know per se. But when you're dealing with an everyday consumer, then yeah, tell tell them exactly what they're what they're about to experience. Exactly, and, and it goes from everywhere, right? From how you write uh, ingredients, from recipes where we used to make like three hour recipes. Now it's like five seconds, right? Just like uh, 
add Nutella. Ooh, great crepe now, right? It's like these small things, but think about your consumer and stop complicated this. And that's actually something that I've learned and really we keep repeating with our team. What are we solving for our consumer? And let's focus on that. So also, how how did you all navigate um, March 2020 and, of course, you know, um, this uh, uh, COVID experience? Because, you know, it was an interesting, um, obviously, in 2021, I know that you um, you 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 um, you kind of raised and kind of accelerated the brand from a from a huge level. But what, what was kind of going through your March in, in March 2020? Because from a retail perspective, um, you know, grocery stores hadn't shut down. Um, it's just that they became very kind of inconvenient to kind of shop at and go to. I remember, you know, saying in lines, waiting for people to come out, you as a consumer then go in. So if you, if you did it access and know how to do it, um, and know how to, you know, use the web, then you might be, you know, interested in ordering products more so online or maybe using like Instacart, for example. But how did you think about this from like your brand Belgian boys perspective? Well, um, lots, lots of, of things to unpack there, 2020. But um, I mean, our business wasn't even only grocery back then. We, ha- we were on like airlines. So we were like, oh my God, like this is the end of the world for us. Um, and we, we stopped being in the airlines. Obviously, there were no more flights. But that was, that was actually a scary time for us as a company because that was a big part of our business. And it was all of a sudden went to zero. We had lots of business in corporate campuses, cafeterias, the snack of this office, of that office. So it was a lot of just like, oh my God, like we just lost a big portion of our revenue and we need to just understand what's going on. And then we did not have direct to consumer. So we had major FOMO. We actually rented out like a garage, bleached it out and did thousands of orders ourselves at night um, and like set up this mini shop. I'm just like thinking about it, but yeah, that, that's what we did. Uh, fast forward um, three years after that, we shut down our DTC because our product is not DTCable, and we had FOMO. But these are the lessons that we learned since, and retail is really where we found our sweet spot, and and as well as the websites of our retailers, and that's where we support. Um, our retail person, our digital penetration is extremely high with our retailers. And, you know, I know that you, from the very beginning of the episode, we, we talked about Greg and we talked about, um, as well, um, uh, obviously you're, you're married, you have two kids. Talk to me a little bit about, um, how you both have been able to, cause it's, it's very, very hard balance, balance, um, you know, starting growing um, a business, even if it's, even of course, you know, a very successful business and as well as, you know, obviously family and, you know, um, and obviously your personal lives together. Um, what has been key over the past few years for you, uh, uh, for you all? Surrounded by amazing, smarter people than us. Like that's key. That's key. Like get support. I mean, from a business coach to advisors, to other people in the industry that are doing, uh, that are building businesses to their like sales. First of all, build the team internal and get surrounded by like these peers that you can bounce things back. I think in the beginning when you start a business and that's something I know Greg and I were doing, we, we were very like, uh, 
oh, like this is our idea and, and very protective over it and also afraid to share because A, people tear you down and you take this as like criticism to like, not this sucks, you suck. That's how I used to take stuff. And um, also afraid of copycats, right? I think especially when you start out, you're like, oh, you know, when sometimes I ask people are like, I'm working on a project. Oh, what's the name? Oh, I don't want to tell. Well, share, share it with everyone you know because you rather have someone tell you right now how to improve it and get like make it stronger from people that have more experience with you. So that's, I think, something that we've done from where we've been to how now we just get surrounded by knowledge. And I want you to break down my ideas so that I can see stuff that I might not see when I'm in the day-to-day. Um, and then in terms of Greg and I, yeah, we have kids. Our kids' uh, last name, they actually Liam taught his last name was Belgium Boys at one point. It was like cute, but also scary. Um, and this is our life. This is our Belgium Boys was our first baby before the boys. And um, some days it's very, very hard to work with your spouse. But I see this as I get to work with my husband and I get to do the thing that I love with him. I think at the end of the day, in a co-founder kind of relationships, the most important thing is trust. And while we might not agree with every decision that we make, he thinks A, I think B, etc. I do believe that he had the right intentions to make that decision. And I trust that. And that is a non-negotiable. And I think that when you start from that standpoint, you're set up for long-term success. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? I'm a very big uh, professional books reader. So both business books uh, for me, um, I, I'm a big reader. I love to read. I think a personal one that I like is really Phil Knight in uh, Phil Knight's uh, Shoe Dog. I think it's just that story of the brand building, the entrepreneurship, the like stories. I really get into that. That's one that I think a lot about. And then in professional books, um, I have two. Um, one is Kim Scott, Radical Candor. Like that's how you talk. I, I would recommend it to anyone that's building a team. It's the basics of how you have a conversation and you build a team. And then um, the second one is uh, Simon Sinek, Infinite Game love the concept that he lays out about in there about how to look at success as a long-term success is the journey not a point that you are looking to read there's milestones my success is that journey and that's really changed the way i look at things thank you for these um shoe dog is definitely our most recommended really? uh, one on the oh. podcast yeah how, that's how you talk at infinite game though we have not heard those yet so um so really appreciate radical that. candor yeah radical candor radical candor excuse me Ra- radical amazing candor. amazing radical candor um perfect awesome um nuke thank you so much for your time this has been a lot of fun thank you mike this was so so much fun thanks for having me and i uh, loved our conversation and there you have it it was a pleasure chatting with Anouk. Anouk, thanks again for your time If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on YouTube or however you're viewing this content. And if you really, really enjoyed this episode and love the world of emerging consumer, subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com. I send fundraising updates where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Thank you for listening. 